That being said, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. We're going through the book of Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, verse by verse, chapter by chapter is what we do here, expository preaching. Uh, We're glad you're here this morning. Children, you're dismissed for Children's Church. If um, may you, God's blessing be upon you and the teachers as they teach you about Jesus. That's what we're about, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 12. As I've done over the past couple of weeks, on and off, um, I'm going to read the text. It's a long text. In order to save time, we'll read the text as we go to each point of the sermon. We'll get to that in a minute. So I'm not going to read the text to you, uh, God's holy word. We'll read it as we go through the story. So let me quickly bring everybody up to speed so we are together on this. The book of Samuel is written... His name is Samuel. The book is written because Samuel is the first, excuse me, the last judge of Israel. And the book is named after him. He is from the priestly line of the Levite tribe. And therefore, he is not only a judge, he is a priest. He's also, we saw in chapter 3, called into his prophetic office. God called him into his office to be the mouthpiece of God, to speak for God, chapter 3. He is Israel's prophet, priest, and judge. We've been saying all along, and we're going to see it really clearly today, that Samuel is an Old Testament book of transition, transitioning from a theocracy of people ruled and governed by God to a monarchy. For the first time, God will have an earthly king, and we'll see that transition uh, of that anointing. We saw that transition when Samuel anointed Saul as the first king of Israel. Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. We saw how important that was last week. In chapter 8, God people demand a king. They want to be like everybody else. They want a king, uh, an earthly king that will lead them, judge them, and fight their battles. They did not want to be separate from the world. They wanted to fit in with everybody else, like all the other nations. And God told them that if your friends jumped off a bridge, would you join them? No, he didn't say that. My mom told me that, right? So the point is, like, don't do everything your friends do. Wasn't a good idea to look like all the other nations. It was okay to have a king. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 17, we read about this king and what this king is supposed to look like. He's supposed to love the Lord. He's supposed to serve the Lord. He's supposed to submit to God's word. But they wanted a king. They demanded a king. And in God's good providence and his working out of his sovereignty in chapter 10, 9, excuse me, Samuel meets Saul. And then in a private anointing, Samuel the prophet anoints the king, the first king, in a private ceremony of oil on his forehead or over his beard. And then we saw in chapter 10 that God himself anointed, that was poured out his spirit on the first king, Saul. He was consecrated for the Lord. He was empowered by God to fight Israel's battles. That's what kings do. God tells them, and we'll see it again today, over and over again, their decision, their desire, and their passion for a king, an earthly king who looked like everybody else, was really a rejection of the one true God, the covenant God that they were to worship. And in chapter 12, as we get into chapter 12, we're going to see this covenant being renewed. We're going to see the the, the farewell address of Samuel and this covenant renewal happened in chapter 12 and it takes place at a at a city a town called Gilgal it's an important city it's a city that God's people were in when they took over the promised land not long before this 
by the, by, the, by the hand of God, but through the leadership of Joshua. It was the place where they built memorial, a 12-stone memorial for the tribes of Israel to remember the work that God was doing and God was fighting for them. It was a place in Joshua 4 and 5 where they did another renewal of the covenant and uh, the second generation of Israelites were circumcised, which is the sign of the covenant. Gilgal is also the place where the angel of the Lord came and reminded them of their deliverance at Exodus in Judges 2 through uh, 1 through 5. It's an important city. It's a city where Samuel uh, has gone many times to as a circuit judge to judge Israel. It had a, a very close relationship between Gilgal and the covenant God, the God in which made a covenant with God, his people. And last week we saw in chapter 11, before they went to Gilgal, we saw Saul empowered by the Spirit, because that's what kings do, fight against God's enemies called the Ammonites, if you remember from last week. And we made this analogy that the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection is a war. Not a physical war, but a spiritual war. Not fought with bombs and bullets. Our weapons, the scripture says, are, 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 are our warfare have divine power to destroy strongholds. And we deny, excuse me, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought, because the battle's in the mind so often, every thought captive to the obedience to Christ. The scripture says that our weapons are weapons of righteousness. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We're, we're called to put on the whole armor of God that we will stand against the enemy The devil's schemes, Ephesians 6. If you haven't gotten there, CDs are in the back. Fighting against the enemy, Satan. And now, they win the battle. Saul is empowered by the Spirit, anointed by God. They win this great battle against the Ammonites, if you remember from last week. And then it ends in chapter 11 of Samuel's calling the people. If you look with me, chapter 11, verse 14. He calls the people to Gilgal to renew Verse 14 of chapter 11, to renew the kingdom. They made Saul king there. Uh, they, they sacrificed the peace offering. And look what it says, the very last verse, and all of Israel rejoiced greatly. It was a really good time in Israel, at Gilgal. And as they're celebrating, Samuel says, listen, let's renew the covenant. Let, let's go back and renew our commitment to God and God's covenant with us. Yes, we have a king. Yes, there's a lot of rejoicing. Yes, we have peace and safety in our land. Our king has done great things. But remember, the king of kings, God himself, under the leadership, yes, of King Saul, but God is their king, and God is their covenant king. So, as we get into chapter 12, we'll see four things. First, we're going to see Samuel's proven character. Verses 1 through 5. And then God's past conduct. The, the work of God in the past and how it applies to us today. God's precise condition. There was a condition placed on Israel in this Mosaic covenant. And then Samuel's prayerful consideration and we will go to communion. So number 1. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Samuel has called all the people to Gilgal. They have come to renew the kingdom. And Samuel said to all Israel. Oh, Behold. I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and I have made a king over you. And now, verse 2, behold, the king walks before you. I'm old and gray. 
And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Verse 3. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whom hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. Verse 4, they said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. What's happening here is this final transition between a theocracy, again, a man, people ruled by God, and a monarchy, a people ruled by the king. And now Samuel's the leader. Samuel's God's mouthpiece. He'll lead him back to God in the midst of this bad decision. The transition is taking place. The mantle is being turned over to the king, but now he wants to speak about his faithfulness. It's sort of like verses 1 through 5. I thought about this. It's sort of like he's trying to clear the air. Just, I want to make this really clear in this transition between a, 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 a God is the king and, and now you have an earthly king that will lead you. I just want to clear my name. And the first thing we can say is that when God calls you to lead, when God calls you to speak a, a message, sometimes the message he asks us to speak is a difficult one. I, I mean, he had, he had to remind Israel of their sin. And sometimes, sometimes difficult conversations that God calls us to need to be done, need to be said. This shouldn't be fun. Like if you have a lot of fun telling somebody, you know, something they did or, or, or something they're doing wrong and you're not doing it in love. But sometimes hard situations, hard conversations have to happen. And Samuel's like, look, here's your king. Here's your king. He's tall. Remember from last couple of weeks ago? He is tall. He is handsome. He won Mr. Israel every year. He's relatively young. He's your king you wanted. He said, but I'm old. I'm old and I'm gray. Uh, you know, this is your king now. Notice he doesn't say anything about his sons. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. My sons are with us and, and move on from there, right? They, they, they were taking bribes, remember? They weren't doing very well. They didn't walk in their father's way. And they, they took pride. They perverted justice. They, they weren't good judges at all. And Samuel then calls the nation to testify. He says, bear witness. Who, whose ox did I take? Has I taken anybody's ox? Donkeys, have I defrauded anybody? Have I taken bribe? Have I done anything of injustice? Do you see what's going on? Do you remember back in chapter 8 when Israel asked for the king and Samuel went to the Lord and, and the Lord said, listen, tell him this is what the king is going to do to you. Do you remember that? And how this king is going to be raised up. If you don't, I have it right here. Chapter 8, verse 11. He says, the king that you want, the king that will be like all the other kings, the king that will lead you and you're going to uh, reject me as your king. God says, this is what the king is going to do to you. He says this, he will take your sons 
He will appoint them a chariot. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men, put them to work. That's the king that you guys want. You want your king, that's what he's going to do. He says, he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. There's overtaxation. Pardon the pun. If that's the king you want. And now Samuel is saying, listen, the king you want, you, you, you want him, you're going to have him. This is what he's going to do to you. And now Samuel's going, have I done that to you? Have I done what we know the king's going to do? Have I taken any ox from you? Absolutely not. So is there any charge against me? You know what he's doing? He, he, he's saying, I've been a man of integrity, right? I've been a man of integrity. Oxford Dictionary, integrity, the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles, a state of being whole and undivided, integrated. To, be, to, to have integrity means your personal life and your public life come together. And Samuel has called all of Israel together and says, testify against me. A couple things let's draw from that. Number one, Samuel lives out his integrity in front of other people. Right? Integrity matters. And, and, and we don't act one way around a certain crowd of people and then go and act a certain way around some other people. It depends on who I'm hanging out with today. That's not integrity. Integrity is seeing everybody the same way, living your life in honest openness and that everyone sees you the same, being honest, being transparent, doing what is right when no one's looking, right? That's what, you know, that, that's what he's saying. Have anyone in all of Israel, all the judging that I've done, all the, uh, all the justice that I have administered, is anybody, as I take a bribe from anybody? He's not. Samuel claims he hasn't oppressed, the soul, uh, oppressed anyone. He has not abused his power as a judge. Okay? Now, we're not talking about perfection. There's only one perfect person. His name is Jesus, not you. But integrity. Um, Robert Bergen, in his New American Commentary, writes this. Holding, about this verse, holding court one last time with the people of Israel, Samuel's final act as a judge was to put himself on trial. End quote. And that's what he's doing. Samuel's opened the pages of his life and his story and just saying, who, who, have I, who, who have I harmed? So integrity, number one, is living your life with, in front of everyone, being the same person wherever you are. Number two, look what he says. He tells them, if, if you have a beef with me, if you have a problem with me, if I have offended you, done anything wrong, I'll restore it, right? Verse five, testify against me and I will restore it to you. Is that, have I wronged anyone? Have I done anything to harm anyone? Verse 3, and I'll restore it to you. Well, walking in integrity means that we mess up. It doesn't mean we don't mess up. It just means we're honest. It means we're humble. It means we're accurate. Yeah, that was wrong. Jesus said this, if you, if you are offering your, a gift at the altar, you come to worship, but you remember that you, your brother has something against you, leave it there. Go and reconcile to your brother, then come and give Jack your gift. I mean, just being honest. Transparency is, is, is the way we are as Christians supposed to live, right? It, it's humbling to say to others, I, 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 I sinned against you. I, I should have not said those things. I said, that was harsh. That was mean. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Paul tells the church in Rome, uh, in Rome that, you know, uh, if at all possible, uh, depends on you, live peacefully with everyone. Sometimes you just got to admit it. They may not accept it. They may accept it, but it's, that's not your response. But you have to be honest, 
He's lived his life among all the people. He's willing to make amends where he needs to make amends. And the people respond, look at, look at that. They're like, nope, we're good. Anybody in all of Israel, everyone's like, pretty good, Samuel. You haven't done any of that stuff to us. Look at verse 5. And the Lord, he says, is a witness against you. And his anointing, so what, what Sam is saying is, I've lived this way before you, I'm calling upon God as a witness, and I'm calling upon his anointed. Who's that? That's King Saul, right? The transition is going on. To witness both this day that you have not found anything, and he's like, nope, we haven't found anything. Now remember the word anointed is what? The Hebrew word is Messiah. The Greek word Christ. It's pointing to the king of kings, who will be the anointed, Right? And, and, and remember what it, says, look what it says, it says in verse 5, and his anointed, not, not Samuel's anointed, God's anointed. God is still king, right? So God is the one who anointed Saul. God is the one who's calling Saul to lead his people at this point. He's not giving up his kingship over his people. It's the first public mention of anointing, actually, of Saul as well. And Samuel is stepping aside and saying, look, I'm turning this leadership over to you, Saul, but let me tell you something. As we continue through the series, Samuel is not giving up his prophetic office. He will continue to speak to God's people. He is and will continue to be the mouthpiece of God. So let me draw this conclusion as we end point one. Now listen to me. No matter what your past may look like, whatever mess you have made, All of us can say at this point today, by God's grace, through God's love, with God's enabling power, I can live my life with integrity. Right? I've been forgiven of my sins. I am no longer bound by my past. And because God's love is eternal and his complete acceptance of me is because of Jesus' perfect moral record imputed to me by faith, I can live with openness and honesty and integrity. The psalmist had it right when he said, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Or in another psalm, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? When you have integrity, the most important thing in your life, the driving force of your life. It's not what other people say, but it was God has said. And God, the Bible tells us in Christ, the light's over his people. It doesn't matter what others say. You can walk in integrity from this moment on. And then Samuel is going to rehearse some things. Chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 6. So he's going to talk about God's past conduct, the past work of God. Look with me, verse 6. And Samuel then said to the people, the Lord is witness that Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand. Now, therefore, stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord, all that he has performed, performed for you and for your fathers. Verse 8, when Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. Talking about Gilgal, the city, the, 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 uh, the promised land. Verse 9. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazar, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. What did they do? Verse 10. They cried out to the Lord, We have sinned because we have 
forsaken the Lord. We have served the Baals and the Asheroth. But, before, but now deliver us out of your hand, out of the hand of our enemy, that we may serve you or worship you, as that Hebrew term could be translated. And the Lord then, what did he do? He sent Jerobel, Barak, Zephah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies, every side, and you lived in safety. Verse 12. I think I have it up there. Here we go. And when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, come against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. So you see what Samuel's doing? Samuel's calling Israel together, and Samuel's giving them this grand narrative of the faithfulness of God. This grand narrative of the righteous deeds of, of, of God, starting with Moses and ending actually in the present day with um, the, the king, Nahash, the king from the Ammonites. And the point that Samuel is making in bringing the people in and reminding them of this conduct, this righteous faithfulness of God, is to teach them and to teach us some things about God. Some things about the character of God that we may too trust him. We're going to get to that in a minute. We're going to tell you what that theological truth is. But before we do that, let's just look at what he's telling them a little bit deeper. Number one, he says, God delivered you from slavery. You were in Egypt. You were in slavery. And God raised up Aaron. God raised up Moses. Why? Because your fathers cried out to the Lord. You see that? And the end of the result was not only that God delivered them from Egypt, but God brought them into the promised land where they could now dwell, he says. In the period, we're talking about Genesis, into the book of Judges, excuse me, Joshua, when they come into the present land. But then it says, but you forgot God. God delivered you. God, God brought you out of Egypt. God brought you out of slavery. God brought you into this promised land, but you forgot, verse 9. You forgot God. And then God sold you into, into the hand of the army and the hand of the Philistines and the hands of, of Moab. Israel had failed to heed the morning, warning of Moses. If you look at Deuteronomy 8, not, you don't have to do it today, but when this was going on, Moses told the Israelites, listen, God will deliver you, but if you don't pay attention and you don't follow him, you're going to forget the Lord. And if you forget the Lord, it says in chapter 8, verse 19 of Deuteronomy, and you chase after other gods and serve and worship them, I, the Lord, will warn you that you will surely perish. What happens? Look at verse 10 again. And Samuel's just rehearsing these things that God has done. Verse 10, they cried out to the Lord. They confessed their sin. They rejected God. But now they're confessing and they're turning and they want to worship God. Not the Baals, not the Asheroths. And what did God do? Look at the text. He sent Jer- Jerobel and Barak and, 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 and Jeph, Jephath and Samuel. And he delivered them. Do you see the pattern? Samuel's reminding the people of God that, listen, you were in bondage in Egypt. God set you free. God raised up deliverers, and they delivered you. Then the judges, God, you were oppressed. You, 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 you know, rebelled against me. You cried out for help. And God sent more to people to deliver you. Over and over again. And then and the, in, um, the third one is Nahash. Look at that with me. In chapter 12, let's see, verse uh, Verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said, but a king shall be over us. If you remember from last week, this was last week's text. Uh, they, didn't, they, they said, listen, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to find somebody to help us. They didn't cry out to, to the Lord. They didn't cry out and say, give us the Lord's anointed. 
They wanted to be their own king. They wanted to do their own thing. And what did God do? God gave the spirit to Saul, empowered him, and fought the battles for them. They wanted their own king. Not in God we trust. In their political leaders. That should speak to us today. In in their kings, in their human authorities and powers. Family, ultimately, I don't care who's in power. We're in a broken, fallen world. Until Jesus comes back, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he will reign in righteousness. Yes, we should get involved. Yes, we should vote. Yes, all that is true. But listen, our hope is in the Lord. And when Jesus comes back, you will not be asked to go into a voting booth. That's not going to happen. And what we see is these crises, this cry for help, this forsakenness and rejection of God's people. And then God raises up these leaders who delivers them. You see what he's saying? The cycle of sin, the cycle of slavery, the cycle of repentance, God always comes in and rescues, redeems, and loves his people. How can we apply this to our lives? Number one, which I hinted on already. Number one, it is the Lord, listen, not armies, not kings, not weapons or political champions who will rescue the people of God. Ultimately, our hope, our trust, and our rescue is in God alone. Not in human authorities, but in God alone. Listen, all other saviors, all other lords enslave you and cannot and will not deliver you. Trust in God. That's what, that's what Samuel's saying. Have faith in God. Remember God's past faithfulness. Number two, God rescues his people as they pray and repent and have faith. That's what he's called. Look, turn from your idols and come. I'll pray for you in, in prayer and prayer and, and I, I want to repent of my sin, which means turn. I want to trust in you. Paul tells us, excuse me, um, Matt Chandler, he's a pastor at Village Church. He said this, I will know you will understand the gospel when you are fervent and frequent in your confession and repentance. I don't know about you, but I need to confess my sins regularly and turn from them. So number one, God alone will rescue us. Number two, prayer, repentance, and faith is a mark of of the gospel. Number three, when you declare the goodness of God, when, when you are speaking past goodness of God, listen, you are reminding yourself you are reminding others around you of the faithfulness and the goodness of God. Paul picks it up in Romans 15. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The world and the world systems wants us to forget about the faithfulness of God. You're not going to read it in a newspaper. You're not going to watch it on television. The world around us want us to forget about God's faithfulness, God's past kindness and goodness to us. And what they want us to do is get our eyes off of our hope and put our hope in things that only lead to despair and to hopelessness and to false gods. That's why we need to come together on a regular occasion, whether it's Sunday morning or in community groups, and continually, continually, continually remind us of the gospel. 
that I am so wicked and so sinful that God had to die for me, yet I am so loved and treasured that Jesus was glad to, as Keller likes to say. Reminding ourselves of the truth of the gospel. Speaking of Tim Keller, I got a quote here. He says this, the gospel is not the first step in the stairways of truth. Rather, the gospel is like a hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z in Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom. The gospel is how we grow and are renewed. The gospel is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier, end quote. That's why if you've been here any amount of time, man, we we just keep coming back to Jesus, man. That's all we got. That's all we got from you here from this pulpit is you're a sinner and God is greater than your sin and that God forgives you and loves you and redeems you and wants you to continually to destroy the idols in your life and worship him. And we're looking, saying the same thing every week, looking for different ways to say it, to drive in the truth of the gospel. It was Martin Luther who said that the gospel, he said, uh, we should know this article the doctor, uh, of the, the gospel well, teach it to others and beat it into our heads continually. Every day. Every day. Um, there's a man by the name of Paul Tripp, a pastor, uh, a writer. Um, he gives us four things, and if you want to jot this down, you can send me an email, I can send it to you. But how does it, what does it really mean to proclaim the gospel, to be reminded of the goodness and faithfulness of God every day? What does it mean? He gives us four things. I thought they were wonderful. I wrote them down. Number one, you want to remind yourself of the gospel every day? Number one, gaze on the beauty of Christ. Gaze on the beauty of Christ, his incalculable worth, his uh, infinite value above all things. Gaze on the beauty of Christ, number one. Number two, remember who you are as a child of God. If you're a blood-bought child of God, you belong to him eternally. Remember, you're a child of God. Number three, rest in his power and provision. Rest in not your power, not your provision, but rest in his power and his provision. And number four, act in reliance upon him. Move out in faith. Gaze on the beauty. Remember who you are as a child. Rest in his power and provision and then act in reliance upon him. Great advice. Samuel's proven character, God's past conduct. Number three, God's precious conditions. Look at verse 13 with me. And now... Behold, the king whom you have chosen, there he is, for whom you have asked for, there he is, tall and handsome Saul. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reign over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Things will go well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. You have a new, mon- you have a new man here, King Saul. Went from theocracy to monarchy. Here he is for you. But does not mean that I am not still the Lord your God. That's what God is saying to Samuel. If you do well and your king does well, if you listen to my voice, if you follow my commands, if you walk with me faithfully, things will go well. Notice he doesn't just say the people, and notice he doesn't just say the king. He says both the king and you. 
right? An unrighteous nation will have an unrighteous king, but a righteous nation will have a righteous king. Nothing new here. And what you're hearing here is this, this Mosaic covenant kind of stuff coming up that you read in Deuteronomy. Israel will be blessed as she trusts in her God and obeys her voice, and she will likewise be cursed when she turns from God and does her own thing and follows their own laws and runs after their own gods. God's condition hasn't changed. God has not stepped out from being king. His covenant is still the constitution of the land. And that's what Sam was trying to say to his people, that they need to repent, turn from the early rejection of the Lord as king, and turn to him as king. God is graciously giving them an opportunity. It's rather simple if you think about it. When Joshua, back in Joshua 24, right before this period of the judges, of, excuse me, of Samuel, uh, Joshua said this in chapter 24. Now listen, he said this. Now therefore, he's talking to all of Israel. It's kind of renewal again. You see these renewals of the covenant in many places in the scriptures. He says this. Now therefore, Joshua 24. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, you don't want to do that. It says, choose this day whom you will serve. Either the gods, small g, of your fathers who served in the, uh, uh, the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites, another small g, who are in the land. But he says, for me, Joshua says, but for me, I know my choice. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Sam was like, listen, you, are, you have a king, you have this earthly person, but, but he's under Yahweh. God, king over Israel. He is to, to submit to him. So you guys, listen, what are you going to do? You have this king. Are you all going to submit to this king in his little puny kingdom? Or are you going to submit to the king of kings and the kingdom of God? That's the question. And the test, it's interesting because Jesus picks it up in John 15. The test of who's truly king of your life is through who you serve, who you worship, who you obey. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. Don't keep my commandments in order to love me. He said, if you love me, obey me. Right? Now, I don't want to take anything and undermine anything about obedience. We are called to obey the Lord. But some people hear that. We're going to talk about it more as we close. Some people hear that and they're not hearing it. And they're hearing, I need to have perfect obedience. Otherwise, God won't love me. That's not what the scriptures teach. Okay, that is not. We live in a fallen, broken world. In fact, the law of God, the moral standard of God, actually leads us to the point of going, oh my word, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. That's the point. One of the points of of the law. Now hear me carefully. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that Jesus fulfilled God's law perfectly. And now in faith, by faith in his atoning sacrifice and resurrection from the grave, God, by faith, imputes his perfect righteousness to my account. And now we can serve, even fear God and worship God because God has forgiven us of all our sins. The fear of failure is gone. It's removed. Judgment is removed. Romans chapter 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free now. To fear, love, and serve God because he's given us a new heart with a new spirit, new desires, and he empowers us to live for his glory 
And again, we'll, we'll come back to that a little bit more about obedience. We'll wrap it up into the gospel. Look at verse 16 with me. He's calling people, now stand. <laughs> I'm renewing this covenant. You, you, you have obedience and blessing. You have uh, disobedience and rebellion and curses. Stand up and see this great thing the Lord's going to do. Verse 17, is not wheat harvest today? The answer, yes. I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourself a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now you can see it now, right? Stand up. You guys are wicked. I'm going to call upon the Lord. It's wheat season, which means the rains are gone. That's what that means. It means there's no rain in Israel. Not supposed to rain. But I'm going to call down rain. I'm going to show you that God is present in my, in my preaching and, and show you that what I'm saying is true. Authenticating his message. And the bottom line was not for, for, for it, it wasn't to show how mighty Samuel was or, or even how greatly they sinned. It was a way in which God was showing the people to turn from their idols and wanting their own king, their own way, doing their own uh, will and turning to God. And God responds out of love and grace. Listen, God had every right that day in Gilgal to say, this is how many times have I told you this? Done. Done. But he doesn't do that. He calls upon this rain. Samuel calls upon people to repent through this miraculous thunder and, and, and it rains and they're like, we, we fear God. He, he is here. He is among us. Look at what it says. The people greatly fear the Lord. And now the people, I think, they're, they're really starting to get it. They're going to lose it, but they're getting it now. They're like, listen, we, we have sinned against God. We, 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 we are demanding a king for the wrong reasons. They seem to fear discipline. God's precious conditions before them. And now look at verse 19 as, as we hit number four. Samuel's prayerful consideration. Verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, right, thunder and, 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 and fear. And they're like, Samuel, pray. Pray for your servants to the Lord. And we won't die. For we have added to our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. That's what you want to hear, right? Thunder, lightning, fear, like, don't be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet, that's code word. That yet is code word. Know what that code word is for? Grace. That's, that's, that, that yet is grace. But God, Ephesians 2. You're wicked, you're sinful, but God in mercy, but yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Listen, true and everlasting joy is saying is found in God, in God alone. Idols will rob you. False gods will rob you. They'll enslave you. And the problem is we're chasing after false gods and trying to find something that only God can do. Our satisfaction and what our hearts need is found in Christ alone. He's saying, they're, they're, they're worthless. They, they'll, they'll become to nothing. And remember we said, even good things, when they become ultimate things, become idle things. God does not take a backseat to anything. Right? 
Verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Don't be afraid. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will instruct you in the good and the right way. I've been praying for you. I am the leader of Israel. I, I, I am your I am the mouthpiece of God. I will pray. If I don't pray for you, then I'm sinning against you, and I don't want to do that. So, family, my question for you, are you on the city, our social network? Are you praying for one another? We post prayers every day. There's a prayer or every other day. There's prayers going up. If you're involved in a community group, which you should be involved in a community group, you have prayers going up on your community groups. I just want to encourage you to be praying for one another. Pray for us. Pray for the upcoming services. Pray for the Ravina, uh, the, the gospel that's going out in Easter that many people come to know and love Jesus. Pray. And Samuel reminds them, it's not just the king that they've chosen, but look what he says, to make all of you a people for himself. Make all of you a people. It's not just the king God has chosen. God has chosen you, and God will not abandon you. That's, that's to the church. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Verse 24. Only fear the Lord. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. And underline this verse. I love this verse. For consider what great things God, he, God, has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, if you want to run that way, you'll be swept away, both you and your king. For consider the great things God has done for you. Do you see what's happening here? God, listen, God, unlike the bad king, chapter 8, who takes from you, or Eli's sons who take from you, remember that in chapter 2, or Samuel's sons who take bribes, Samuel says our God is not taking, our God is giving. Our God doesn't take, our God gives. Consider what great things he has done for you. Not like the kings, not like the, uh, the, the Eli's sons, not like Samuel's sons who take. The gospel is the giving of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is the giving of his son. It is the gospel, listen, that causes us to fear God, serve God, and obey God. Well, you say, well, how, how does the gospel do that? How does the gospel teach us to fear God, to obey God, to, to, to love and serve God? When I talk about the fear of God, many of you, some of you, I should say, I don't know how many, whatever you are, some of you think of fear and you think of it in a negative way. There's fear in a negative way and there's fear in a positive way, particularly when you're talking about relationships with people. Some, of, some people have a negative sense of fear in relationships because you're afraid. You have fear because someone may harm you. You fear them, you fear them in, in a sense where you don't want to be around them because it'll cause hurt. There is a positive sense to fear of someone where there is a reverence to fear a reverent kind of, of who they are in an honor way. Negative fear is about self-preservation. I don't, I don't want to get harmed. You see that snake? I'm running from them because I hate those things. For me, it's spiders. Large spider. Yeah, Billy's laughing over here. He picked up, uh, what did you pick up? 
We're in Dominican Republic. And he's, tarantula? Yeah, holding it. I'm like, go to the other country. Like, leave. And he's walking around with a tarantula, freaking me out. But anyway, and I'm thinking we're in the middle of nowhere. There's no hospital. That's another story. But anyway, so there's a, there's a, there is a sense of fear, that self-absorption. I don't want to be near that thing. You may hurt me. And then there's a positive sense of fear where there's a, a wonder, a, a, a sense of honor, a sense of, I don't want to look like an idiot in front of you because of who you are. You know, there's, a, there's an honor, there's a, um, a, a, a wonder in it, right? There's a difference. Well, the fear of the Lord is a life centered on God that produces joy and awe because of the majesty and greatness and beauty and love of who God is and what God has done. For Christians whose hope is in the gospel, the fear and awe of God does not drive us away from him, but his compassion and kindness draws us to him. You see that? Listen to the psalmist. Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark my sin, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? No one. But, the psalmist says, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There's an awe that God's not going to hurt us in spite of our sin. There's an awe, and even in our, in our, in our, in our brokenness, he's not going to condemn us because that's what the gospel says. The difference between a person who approaches God out of a negative fear and a positive fear, the difference between a person with a new heart who understands the gospel and someone who is white-knuckling it, is the one who knows that there is no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus, that Jesus himself bore our judgment and bore our condemnation on the cross. Think about it. The more I am forgiven, the more I fear you. Shouldn't it be the more you're angry with me, the more I fear you? See, that's negative fear. It's the more I experience your love, the more I experience your forgiveness, the more I fear you in a sense of awe and wonder of the majesty and beauty and glory of who you are. Fear, he says, the psalmist, is actually heightened by love and forgiveness. And and listen, in the gospel, in the good news of Christ, God knows you and loves you and he delights in you because of Jesus. And you turn and want to love him, want to delight with him, and want to respect and honor and not dishonor him because of his love already for you. Remember, remember, remember. Religion is I'll obey God and God will love me and care for me and accept me. That's religion. The gospel is God loves me and accepts me because of the work of Jesus and therefore I will obey him. And it's a slippery slope and if you get it wrong, you're going down a bad path. We're not afraid because he'll beat us or condemn us It's not a fear that he should hurt us. It is the fear of the Lord because we love him, because he has loved us. And we won't want to dishonor. We want to obey. We want to serve. We don't want to run to our false idols that don't really give us anything, only enslavement. When the gospel comes into your life, when God's love and grace has captivated you, you begin to see, embrace, and treasure Christ above all earthly treasures, and you will have great discretion. You will, you'll not be worried about what other people say and dealing with other people, but you'll honor and love the Lord because he's loved you first. The communion table is just what Samuel is telling Israel. Consider what great things he has done for you. 
God is reminding Israel of his past love and faithfulness and his deliverance in order for them to trust him, walk with him, serve him, and obey him. What came first, the law or their deliverance? Their deliverance. Because they've been delivered, they've been called into obedience. You've been delivered. The bread represents the body that was broken for you. The cup represents the blood that was shed for you. You've been delivered. You've been set free. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Every sin, past, present, and future, has been washed away. Embrace God's forgiveness. This table here represents the body and the blood of Jesus. It is not King's Chapel table. It's the Lord's table. For those of you who know Jesus, who love Jesus, have responded to the gospel, the table is for you to come. Jesus himself is calling you to the table. He is in glory, but his spirit still dwells and calling you to the table. And what we're going to do is the band's going to play and you're going to quietly in your seat confess your sins just between you and the Lord and repent of your sins, which means a desire to change and turn and go the other way. And then when you're ready, come and celebrate with joy the work of Christ. The work of his body that was broken. The work of his blood that's been shed. And take communion for yourself. As a family, we gather together. And we remember and consider the gospel. Drive it home every day. Drive it home every day. It's not what you do. It's what Christ has already done. This table is for you if you belong to Jesus. If not, and you're not his, then just enjoy the worship music. We'd love to talk with you. We're glad you're here. But it's about Jesus. Father, we, we need to be reminded of your faithfulness. God, sometimes we are just so caught up in the things that we do that we forget all that you have already done for us. And God, yes, you've called us to turn from our idols. Yes, you've called us to serve you faithfully. Yes, you've called us to obey you and to worship you alone. But Lord, we come Because you have already made the way. Jesus has already died atoning death and rose victorious over sin, death, and hell. And now empowered by your spirit because of the great love you have which you love for us, Christ died for sinners. So we come, not on our own. We come in the name and power and love of Jesus alone. May we get out of the way so that your love be poured out in us that we may serve you and love you with joy because of the great love you've given to us in the gospel. In Jesus' name.